Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on the business of law. I'm Nicole Giantonio, our founder and host. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is accountable for operational excellence across his organization's global legal function. He has responsibility for legal function strategy, operations, embedding performance excellence, technology, as well as panel firm appointment and delivery. The global head of legal operational excellence at National Grid, Mo Zane Ajaz. Welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Mo. Let's jump right into our questions. Mo, you took the role as head of legal operations excellence at National Grid in November of 2015. What change initiatives were priority for the in-house legal department at that point? So I picked up a role which didn't exist before. So creating the role of legal operations was important. So getting the buy-in, getting the resources, and also kind of getting the program set up was kind of a big priority. And I came on the back of the usual more for less pressure. So we had some issues about reducing and improving our existing outside council arrangements. We had done a fair bit of work around aligning our strategy with business goals, but I was there to kind of focus the team to deliver the central business goals. And then there was a big piece about the efficiency piece. So we had the efficiency target of 25%. And it was my job to come up with the program, the levers, and also then make sure that we set up a program to make that happen and then track and make sure that the performance was delivered. 25% is quite a significant savings goal. What was the low-hanging fruit? What were the first two or three things that you did that really had an impact in eating away at that that number, which is significant? I think there was a big piece about visibility of what the external spend was. There was a big piece around introducing an e-billing system so that we could standardize our external spend, get clarity around our how we instruct the law firm, so a more decent instruction protocol. There was a fair bit about scoping the work that was going out and how we managed the scoping, setting up budgets, making sure budgets were delivered. There was a big piece also around the external council management standard. We had some issues there in terms of different law firms are charging us in different aspects. So there's a big piece around generally our outside external spend. Then there was another angle around we were getting a number of value adds from our law firms and we were spending no time understanding what those value adds were, actually spending a bit of time around how those value adds could be quantified so we could demonstrate internally the value of those value adds. And then there's also a piece around demand management. We run a business partner model and it was important for us to be clear about what we were consuming versus what we were being paid to kind of deliver the legal function. So there's a big piece around demand management. So making sure that we could demonstrate to the business what they were getting was what they were paying for. When you were starting those discussions and talking to your business partners about the value that they were getting from their legal services, was there a tone to those conversations? My question is more along the lines of, were you talking about risk or were you talking about you know, putting standards in place for efficiencies to reduce costs over time? I'm thinking it's the latter, but I do want to talk about the former if that was part of it. Was there a risk discussion or was it primarily about efficiency and value? So I think risk and efficiency are kind of linked. So the more we look at internally, 
the greater the control is on risk. So we did have some real conversations around, you know, what is the priority in terms of workload? What is it that we should be doing within the legal function? What if that can be outsourced to a low cost provider? And what if that can be picked up by the business itself through a self-service kind of model? So the conversation around risk did underpin our decision making around what the demand looked like and what the profile of the internal resources looked like. And then again, what the consumption rates were and how we shared the data around what they were consuming and actually what they were paying for. So fast forward from the beginning of when you started working on this 25% cost reduction goal to today, what would you say your percentage of legal work that's done in-house versus through outside counsel? What do those percentages look like? And if there are any drivers that led you to encourage one percentage, you know, one approach versus the other, that would be great to understand as well. Sure. So we have different models as to, you know, the different regions within our business. So in the US, we have a very heavy internal focused legal team. So our legal team is quite extensive in the US. So our in-house team is much greater than our external legal team in the US. Whereas in the UK, we have a small legal function. And here we've taken the approach that Everything that's bet the farm work needs to be done internally. Everything that's kind of big regulatory matters, they're all done internally. So our expertise in that space are all focused on the work that cannot be outsourced. So the internal team in the UK does a lot of the, the heavy lifting in respect of the regulatory pieces. In the US, again, the core areas are picked up, but because we have a bigger legal function, some of the wider areas are also picked up. So some of our real estate work and some of our litigation work is done from within the business, from within the legal function, as opposed to being sourced from an external resource perspective. That's a great, interesting point. We hear this trend towards insourcing is actually a cost savings trend versus using firms outside of matters where they need specific expertise. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. Having you be a guest on Left Foot at this time is part of having you participate in what we're calling our Executing Change series. And it's where we're highlighting legal departments that have been given awards because of their success in implementing change within their departments. You and your team at National Grid were recognized by the Financial Times as one of the most innovative law departments in 2017, specifically for using full project management and a process improvement tool set, including lean and design thinking. We have had the pleasure on left foot of having guests come in and talk about their experience, both educators as well as in-house operations leaders. I'm very interested to share with our listeners projects where you applied lean and design thinking that had a major impact on your department, what those projects were, and most specifically, where those projects might have made a significant change within your legal department that assisted with that 25% cost savings. What can you tell us about those initiatives? Sure. Sure. So National Grid itself is going through a program, a lean program, and they call it performance excellence. So our business itself is very au fait with some of the tools of lean and process improvement. So that gives us a really good platform for the legal function to kind of try some of these tools out and move the dial in respect of the value that we can derive from the tools. I'm personally kind of a big fan of lean. I did a master's in lean enterprise at university recently, and some of the learning from that I've been implementing in National Grid. So there's things like visual management, where you actually spend a lot of time being clear about what are the key messages and have those 
available to the audience in real time. So there's a big piece around how can visual management help change programs. And I think there's a lot of work on that and kind of a lot of thought leadership on the fact that visual management on time information actually helps people be more agile and actually move the dial in terms of any kind of change program. But I came across a tool and it's called the Heinz model for change. And it's an excellent tool. And I'll send a link for your listeners. Principally, it tells you when one of the conditions of change, which they deem to be kind of the key conditions for change to be present, is missing the consequence that results. And basically, I use that model as a go-to guide for when I'm setting up a big project. And it basically says when you're setting up a change project, you need very clear vision on the project. And actually what you're doing is you're taking an audience from their current state to a future state. So being clear about what that future state looks like will help people with their change journey. The next step on that journey is kind of having the right skills to kind of lead the project. Otherwise, what you're going to get is false starts. I'm not going to go through each stage of the model, but basically the model talks through how motivation and recognizing historic kind of impact of change on individuals and putting in safety measures to help with that, putting a good action plan in so people can see what's going on, help the individuals with that change. The example that's jumping out to me is we put in a legal matter management system. The big piece on that is you're asking a legal function that's quite busy already, that has had a number of workarounds on how they store matters, that understand that actually a central storage system is the right thing. In the day where demand is outstripping, supply. They're very busy with work. Me coming in and saying, we're going to be putting in a matter management system and we need you to kind of contribute towards making that project successful. It's quite hard work for having that land on individuals. The overall result that we got was that over 87% of the individuals that were involved in that change program found the product and the program excellent. I think that's really telling. Some of the tools that we used were a lean tool, which is called 3C. So you basically get a number of individuals in a room and you say, looking at the current system, what are your concerns with that system? So you identify as many concerns relating to the current way of doing things. And that is a really cathartic piece of work that you do in a workshop environment where you're identifying all of the current issues that you've got with the existing way of doing things. From the concerns, you move into what's the cause of that concern. And the cause is often a a legacy system. We haven't got the time. The infrastructure doesn't work for us. So you identify all of the causes. And what you're doing there is you're working with your stakeholder group to say, guys, tell me what are the issues? Tell me what's the cause of those issues. And then you work together to come up with a countermeasure. So the third C is countermeasure, concern, cause, and countermeasure. And that helps you identify all of the countermeasures that you will put in place. And if you put those countermeasures in place, you have a conversation with your stakeholders saying, if I put all these countermeasures in place, i.e. get you involved in the program, make sure that I don't sell a product that you're not happy with, do all the show and tells for you, get you to test and break the system, agilely change the system. If I did all of those things, would you deem those to be sufficient countermeasures for the cause and the concern? And if I got all of that right, would you be supportive of the program, be my change agent and change champion on it? And when you do that up front, as lawyers, we're expected to identify the risks and issues. So if you can get a bunch of lawyers in a room and say, what is broken with this system or what could go wrong with this system? 
and you identify all of the concerns and all of their causes and you agree a set of countermeasures, you end up getting a really good mitigation program up front and actually then you build a program on the back of that. So the 3C document, whilst it's very simple, is very, very effective in terms of getting an audience on side with you in identifying the mitigation measures that are required to put a big change program in place. And then the fact that we were agile and we listened and we made sure that we were putting in the clear comms about what we were doing, delivering on on the actions that we committed to deliver, that kind of proved why we got such a successful result in terms of the end of project feedback survey. That number, 87%, is significant. And to have what is a risk-averse population, plus, of course, your business leaders who are, for anyone in business, changes can be painful or can be perceived as painful. So to get understanding at the outset, there is a cost reduction goal. It really gets people to think, well, whatever change is coming down is not going to be positive. But to present it in a way you're hearing their concerns and then you're addressing those concerns, a strong approach and why a methodology like the three C's and like the Heinz model are part of our business nomenclature at this point. So Mo, as you were taking on these projects and you were implementing these changes, what was the most surprising response that you got from your business partners or from your in-house counsel that had the relationships with those business partners? Were they pleasantly surprised in aspects or was there an area that was a concern for them that was not raised during the initial 3C conversations? What was the most surprising aspect of implementing the change? I'll lead to another example where the 3C was really powerful. So we were putting in a new panel of law firms and when you're putting in a panel of law firms, everybody in the legal function has their preferred suppliers. And we had conversations early on in the process about the size of the panel and how we were doing the relationship management. And we had a lot of feedback. The panel was too, you know, too comprehensive. We had 21 law firms in the UK. We were not doing effective relationship management. So there was a kind of a big emphasis in the 3C conversations around, we need to reduce the size of the panel mode. So we had conversations around the cause, the concern and the countermeasure. So my countermeasure was at the end of this program, if I reduce the panel, you will be supportive of the decision. Everybody signed up to the 3C document. I use it like a a tablet that I can pull out for change management conversations at a later day when people don't want to play. So when it came to the end of the panel firm appointment process and the 12 law firms were kind of announced, there were a few aggrieved people who said, well, my law firm's not on that list. I'm not comfortable with decision that's been taken. It's at that point when you say, well, through the engagement process, through the 3C program, you said this countermeasure would work. And therefore, let me just pull out the 3C document to reaffirm that you were supportive of this program. And then that was a really good tool to shift what would have been a difficult conversation. Subjective conversation became an objective conversation because we had a document that we could pull out and say was why we're doing this. And then the more you can do your stakeholder conversations early up front, try and capture as much of that in a document document, get the individuals to sign up to the terms of engagement for that document, be moving people further down that path, which then enables you to move the change a bit more smoother than ordinarily it would be. And now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com backslash left foot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com backslash left foot. 
our law firms today, whether they're in the AM200, whether they're specialty firms, boutique firms, they understand the legal industry is changing and the business of law is a factor that, you know, asking questions about how they're handling a matter and having some discussions prior to taking on a matter or as part of the guidelines that you put in place to work with that particular firm. In-house teams need to create the conditions for collaboration with law firms. Often we expect our law firms to do this, but then, you know, they're in competition with other panel firms. So therefore, it's very difficult for them to kind of come together and solve a problem if you as inside counsel is not creating the conditions. So at National Grid, we have a quarterly session with our law firms. We call it the Operational Excellence Workshop. And in that workshop, we do things like design thinking, three C's, process mapping. And we're there principally with people who are often not the relationship partners. So some of the legal engineers or some of their BD teams or their tech people. And our, our sole purpose is to solve problems. So on a quarterly basis, you can proactively work with your law firms to kind of address some of the big issues. So things like, you know, these are national grids deliverables for this year. How are you going to work? with each other to kind of help us deliver those. We have done a legal technology audit, again, pulling in our law firms and saying to them, we've seen a number of press releases where you've talked about buying this AI technology, this automation technology. How do I demonstrate to my internal team that you are using those technologies in our work? So actually calling the law firms in saying, let's do a tech audit. Who has got which technology? How can that be applied to the work that we're giving to you? How can that ultimately then result in an efficient way of doing things or an improved way in terms of cost or service or delivery? And actually that joint collaboration and creating those conditions of collaboration are so important and often are you know missed because we actually focus on just getting the legal work done. So someone who's charged with understanding what the bottlenecks are within the service delivery piece and pulling in the law firms to jointly work on that problem statement and solving that problem is so valuable. And I've got so much value as an individual, but also as a function from our law firms and their network when we're trying to solve some of our problems. That's a great point. We haven't heard that as a specific thing that has been called out about looking across your law firms and and seeing what technology they have and ensuring that it is implemented. What's next as far as efficiency and really moving the needle forward with managing legal costs? So I think there's a couple of things. I think workflow and sort of self-service and the RPA stuff where robots or systems do some of the activities for you. There's a big piece about stepping away from the nitty gritty and saying from a systems lens, what are the big things that need to go down which different path? I think if we look at legal work and the work that comes into the legal function and we put in different conveyor belts as to what should happen with those those types of work types, I think we will get into a very interesting space around self-service, RPA, in-house, out-house, offshore, computers, automation. The variables are there for us to exploit. It's creating the time to make that happen. And I think we're looking at some automation pieces at the moment. And there's potential to look at real estate and kind of automate quite a lot of that today. What I'm really interested in is the obligations tracking or contract lifecycle management. So when you have got a contract from inception to negotiation to completion through to kind of then post-completion obligations tracking, you've got various technologies that do bits of it today. There's a lot of talk of technologies that do 
these as a combined. I'm yet to be convinced that there is a platform that does all of it. But one of the things that I always get kind of challenged back on is you can automate a contract and it will give you first draft. Then there's the heavy lifting negotiation. And then there's the e-signature and then there's the filing. I think the negotiation piece, you can do a lot of premeditated what will be negotiated, option one, option two, option three. So you can get away with improving the amount of first draft editing that needs to happen. But what I'm interested in is when a matter is completed, why can't we get another automation piece done, which tracks all the obligations? Because obligations in contracts are the biggest bane of GC's lives today. And one of the things that I'm interested in doing at the moment, and we've got a live design thinking ecosystem thing that's kicking off in the new year, where we've pulled in some legal engineers, a law firm, some in-house teams, and we basically did a call for action. And we want to come up with a standard on how do you sort out the contract lifecycle management? Because we hear all the statistics that, you know, that if you get this right and you get your contract lifecycle management piece to work, it's worth up to 10% of your total procurement spend. An organization like National Grid, that's huge. So getting a standard and getting a platform to kind of make that come alive, it's something that I really care about. And I think it's something that, you know, it's alluding to kind of some of the other things that I'm doing outside of National Grid around kind of helping solve our big hairy problems using the whole ecosystem. Your listeners, particularly, and the stuff that you do on your podcast, really kind of go to the heart of, as an ecosystem, how can we collaborate to try and solve problems that we've got um, that we individually will spend a huge amount of money, effort, and energy on, but actually as a collaborative, if we pull all of our ecosystem together and try and solve that, we'll get there a lot quicker. And things like design thinking are there just to kind of, you know, utilize all of your resources to kind of come up with a solution. It might not be for everyone, but come up with a solution today, let people use it, open source their kind of learning off that, and then bring that back in. Nothing is new. Somebody has somewhere has done this. We've got the best minds in in the world on in the legal profession, but we don't do the collaboration piece. Collectively, we could actually solve some real problems. Absolutely. A lot of levels. The point you made about having a system that takes a contract management system that is a full life cycle that does approach every aspect of it and even steps into the advice area, the negotiation side. Full platforms exist in HR, they exist in finance, they exist in other areas. At some point, there will be a legal technology platform that will allow an entire process to be looked at. And whether there's a component of it where advice needs to be AI type of decision making, we're not that far away. No, finance did the back office, front office years ago. We're beginning to get into that space and they have, you know, the SAPs and the bigger kind of enterprise systems. And I think you're absolutely right that we will get to that. We probably need a few iterations before we get to that. But the big piece for me is get people in a room and put a problem on a wall and they'll give you loads of options to kind of solve those. And then you prioritize those for impact and effort and you go out and try the solution and then from that solution, you never know where you'll end up with in terms of the system. Absolutely agree. Taking the ball down the field, having the conversation and stepping back, getting out of this is the way it's been done. Fantastic content. We want to bring the message that data and design thinking and lean and efficiency, collaboration, communication, these are all critical to the next phases here in what is happening in the legal environment. Mo, thank you. Is there any last points you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? Just one thing. So I have talked and probably been on a hobby horse for a while around getting the ecosystem together. Talking about it and doing something about it is something that 
is important in our industry. So what I have done with a bunch of GCs is pull together a website called Lex Open Source. And this basically pulls together some tools, some models on business models on how to run the legal function like a business. And basically, this is a free resource that you can sign up to and where we work with the ecosystem to do some design thinking online to try and solve some of the common problems. So we have done a series of these already. And the first one was, how do you align the legal function strategy with the business's goals? And how do you demonstrate value? And so what we did was we, we did a in-person session with 20 GCs, came up with all the causes using an Ishikawa, which, which is a fishbone analysis of what's broken with that process, all the way up to coming up with some recommended solutions. And that's been published on Lex Open Source. And, and we've called it Lex Open Source because the solution that we come up with in, you know, whether it's online through design thinking or in person through design thinking is the first draft. Then we want you know, members to take that away, play with it, rip it to shreds, come back and say, Mo or the team, this doesn't work. We've applied it and here's our learning on it. And what we want to do is we want to layer and layer it as much as we can and actually push the improvement piece to the next level. So we've done strategy and goals. We're moving into demonstrating value. We're moving on to demand management. So there's a program of events that we're going to be doing with our ecosystem. And I think the more members we've got, we want to play in that space, the more interesting it will be. So anyone who's got any tools that they've used that they think that they want to share with the wider ecosystem, Lex Open Source is the place to go. And there's no cost. We have just some rules around making sure that there's no anti-competitive behavior and, and make sure that we're not doing any selling. This is meant to be an open ecosystem for people to benefit from. So that's what would be my final message. Get involved and, and see what you can learn from Lex Open Source. No, fantastic. And I so appreciate that. Mo, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Our episodes are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and leftfoot.com. 